0: to the Not-A-Cast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And we are here to start talking about House of the Dragon, the new series from HBO, the prequel to the universally beloved series Game of Thrones, <laughs> and sure to be a lightning rod of controversy for better or worse over the next couple of months. So we're going to be covering each episode of House of the Dragon as it comes out every week. We're going to be recording these on Monday nights, and they're going to be going out for everyone, patrons as well as general listeners, on Tuesday mornings. Very similar to how Jeff and I covered Game of Thrones Season 8 in what was only three years ago, but seems like at least (laughs) 3,000. My opening impressions, we'll get into details obviously as we go, but I thought it was really good as a premiere it was it was my expectations were reasonably high going in they were kind of getting higher as i went along towards the show and yet overall i think this this episode exceeded those expectations i thought it was thoughtful i thought it was dreadful really effectively and i thought there was just an appropriate amount of spectacle for an opening episode with a little more money behind it than thrones had
1: yeah i think that i'm on uh, complete agreement with everything you just said that it was just really solid Uh, and like I don't even want to say that to undersell it. I think it was like really, really good. Um, And especially from a book reader point of view, everything here felt it had a purpose, a firm grounding in a political reality or personal frictions that we know exist um, and things that we know will erupt into the Dance of Dragons proper in coming seasons. Uh, It also had a kind of quiet confidence about it in the way it both um, adhered to its predecessor show in terms of, you know. Aesthetic, the music, some of the visuals, and also where it chose to depart or expand upon things we have seen before. Um, so it feels of a piece with its you know predecessor show, which you know was a massive hit and reached a lot of eyeballs in the end. Um, but it also found a way to kind of stake its own claim and kind of this is going to be the direction this show goes. And I'm sure we'll get that vision more fully with upcoming episodes. But I think it kind of laid down a really solid foundation, especially kind of knowing where all the little individual conflicts are going to go and bubble up towards uh, the bigger conflicts we expect in later seasons.
0: It's the same world, but it inhabits it differently. And that world looks obviously somewhat different because of, of what a different time it is. And my, my big reservation, my big concern about this show, other than that, it would look cheap, which it mostly doesn't. But my other big reservation was that there are just so many characters and they're all important, but at different times and in different ways. And that's a really difficult ensemble balancing act. And while I definitely knew I was going to like the cast, I was just concerned about the the juggling of that. But I do think they've, they've set up a strong dramatic structure. And I think you can see that with that line in the opening voiceover, the only thing that can destroy the House of the Dragon is itself. Which I think that's definitely something I'm sure a through line that's gonna, they're gonna coming, keep coming back to as the show goes on. Even, Even if not literally, that's gonna be the kind of source of the drama. It sets up the kind of political house of cards within the Targaryens as the central focus, which is where it should be.
1: Yeah. And I honestly really enjoyed that the title card after that opening like placed us 172 years before the death of the Mad King and the birth of Princess uh, Daenerys Targaryen, which they kind of faded out all the letters except the 172 years before. Um, so it kind of lays down the stakes. And also knowing the ending of this episode, it does add kind of bookends that specifically tie it to the story we saw in Game of Thrones. Also uh, possibly of note with that opening scene uh, with the Great Council is that the opening narration was read by Emma Darcy, and they are playing the older Rhaenyra incarnation that we're going to see later on. Um, And we get that clue when they say, um, my father was chosen amongst that little narration. And I just wonder if this might be a framing device or... Um, Kind of an audio cue they might use again later, if not for anything else, but maybe just to transition us into um, the later period when, you know, Alicent and Rhaenyra are adults. Um, I wonder if this is going to be a device they come back to for that uh, transition.
0: Having her voiceover as a bridge there does make total sense. I wouldn't be surprised if that's how they handle it and in terms of the the content of her her little voiceover monologue it sets up this sense of of factions shifting around each other in the royal family it's the you know the wheels within wheels political plotting and the individuals we see as the episode goes on just get ground up in that that's a kind of a constant refrain in this episode and i imagine it's going to carry forward knowing the story just that there's no There's no sense of liberation. There's no way to just be yourself and suit your desires. And that's the irony of the immense power these people wield, but none of them seem to be able to carve out a space to be themselves in.
1: Yeah, no, I think uh, a through line I kind of realized through this episode is uh, duality, which has always been core to this work, given the nature of Ice and Fire and its title, and that this story specifically is going to be about the two sides of House Targaryen, Targaryen tearing itself apart, the Greens and the Blacks. But throughout this episode, and we'll get into these scenes in more detail as we go, but you're often seeing the cutting between two separate events happening at the same time, whether it's the tourney and uh, Aemma Targaryen's C-section, um, the small council uh, talking about Daemon versus what Daemon's actually up to in the in Flea Bottom or in brothels, or Viserys telling Reyna about Aegon's glorious purpose and that being undercut with the pageantry of Uh, presenting Rhaenyra as heir to the Iron Throne uh, at the end of the episode. So basically, all the major acts have this big uh, flipping back and forth between two scenes to kind of emphasize what's visible, what's not visible, what's the performance for the political reality versus perhaps what's more important with the fantastical reality of Westeros as created by George Martin.
0: I think about Rhaenyra flying at the opening. That's the happiest anyone is in the whole episode. And as soon as she touches ground, the dragon is led away, put under, put in chains, and led away. And the people also are just kept under these restraints. You can even see it in body language. Like Renira only really relaxes around Alicent after that, and she tenses up when she has to perform. No surprise watching this, knowing that they had her read uh, Arya's lines when she was auditioning for the role. It makes absolute sense because that's a it's a less exaggerated version of the disconnect Arya faces. And I don't even really think they needed that I would rather be a knight line. She gets to spell it out when the implication is so clear and so moving when she talks about how she she can't be the son her father needs later in the episode.
1: Yeah, it's uh, one of those things. um, We'll talk about some weaknesses later, but maybe made the dialogue a little too literal where I feel like that uh, sentiment came across beautifully just through her performance in Riding the Dragon Inn. Her later chat with Alicent about whether she dreams about a higher position in the Westerosi hierarchy. Um, I think it's clearly showing that she is that, no, that's not me, Arya, that we saw talking to Ned Stark um, in early a Game of Thrones and also in the show as well. She's not someone who just wants to be married off to a High Lord and be kept like that. Uh, she envisions herself outside of the traditional role um, of a woman in a royal setting would have or a royal position like she does.
0: So even though this story starts at peace with the Targaryens at the height of their power, there's all these tensions just simmering right beneath the surface. Like, Corliss and Rhaenys have clearly just barely made peace with the status quo. Emma has been through miscarriages and stillbirths and just wants to be done with all this, even as she tells Rhaenyra that it's going to be her place soon. And my favorite example, Alicent, little Alicent, turns all of the anger and dread inward when she keeps just digging into the flesh of her thumbs with her nails. That, that constant anxiety and anger, that's kind of the most intimate version of the feeling we're seeing spread across the whole story. Yeah, um,
1: I mean, this episode was titled Heirs of the Dragon, and that chapter in Fire of Blood starts with, you know, often the seeds of war are planted during times of peace. And I think we're seeing that even with the little uh, small council, or sorry, the Great Council bit, and then what, you know, what's happening nine years later, we're seeing Corlys kind of take, you know, a serious role in the running of the kingdoms. But you can tell that he's still a little chafed about everything that happened back at the Great Council, a chance that he gets to bring up later. And also you can tell by the way that uh, Reynus is addressed later in the tournament uh, as the queen who never was. And, you know, they kind of roll their eyes at it and then are kind of a little happy when something bad befalls the knight who called her that uh, or the lord who called her that. So, um, yeah, you're seeing um, very little kind of micro, I wouldn't call them microaggressions, but very small scale grievances or uh, little frictions, as I like to call them, uh, taking root here that we know are going to grow in time to much, much bigger uh, conflicts. Um, one thing that I think really stood out to me for this first episode, just kind of getting into some of the performances, um, I think uh, Patty Considine really like sold me on Viserys, a character that even George admittedly said wasn't much on the page, but that Patty helped bring to life. And I think he had to carry most of the dramatic scenes this episode, him and Damon or Matt Smith splitting that role. Um, But the scene with him talking to Rhaenyra at the end and him with Ava Targaryen and the birth scene, which we'll get into. um, But that's a lot of incredible work on his part. And then the young the young actors that are playing uh, young Rhaenyra and Alicent, uh, Millie Alcock and Emily Carey. There was a lot of great interplay between the two and some subtle hints in their dynamic. I mean, they definitely seem, you know, really into each other and perhaps one more into the other. Um, But then there's also the bit with Alicent asking about uh, if Rhaenyra wonders about her position or how that might be affected with uh, the birth of another son under Viserys. Um, But Rhaenyra just wants to fly and eat cakes, which the opening scene really demonstrated to us. Um, And then we see Alicent later in the episode dressing Rhaenyra for her whatever they call the announcing of the air ceremony. I'm not really sure on my terminology there. Um, and like you said, the violence against her flesh, Allison picks at her uh, cuticles or fingernails, probably chews on them because we see them all bloodied. Um, and then, you know, metaphorically, she will get her hands bloodied sooner or later in this conflict. So, um, and we also, you know, got, got to meet Otto Hightower, who is as unlikable as I assumed he was based on everything I read about him in uh, Fire and Blood. You have uh, Risa um kind of very coolly playing the character. Um, still want to see a little bit more out of him, but uh, he definitely is kind of registering the way he treats Alicent to kind of go and comfort the king. Just reads very coldly, and then he just goes right back to writing his letters as if Alicent wasn't even there. Uh, obviously giving a strong Tywin vibe, though. Um, we'll see. It seems like him and his daughter are working on a level that maybe perhaps Tywin and Cersei never did.
0: Yeah, that's a great scene between the two of them, because, I don't know, for me actually, Otto otherwise generally came off more sympathetic than I expected. I mean, he's a deliberately stiff presence, he's Mr. No Fun in the scene, but he is presented as having clear reasons to do what he is doing, namely to stop Damon from sitting the throne, at all costs. And people have compared him to Littlefinger, but we really haven't seen him scheming all that much behind the scenes yet. So yeah, that scene with Alicent, sending, him sending her off to seduce Viserys after hugging her and calling her my darling, and that shows the ruthlessness that brings the green faction into being later on. We're going to take advantage of the king's grief and the lack of an obvious male heir to gather around in order to seize our chance. And it's very telling that the first thing we see of Alicent is her refusing to ride a dragon. But just like how Maesterrell wants to ride a lion to power, as his mom says, Otto wants to ride a dragon to power. The Targaryens hold themselves a level above, but that only encourages the houses who have been in Westeros longer to try and climb up after them. It's interesting that both Otto and Viserys are generally presented as relatable guys, with one exception, and in both cases the exception revolves around how they treat women. Otto sends Alicent to seduce the king without ever saying so, using such neutral language, just wear the dress. It's plausible deniability, so he can deny it to himself as well as others. Viserys having Aima killed is definitely the showstopper scene. That's what people are going to remember this episode for, I'm sure. And I was definitely expecting them to cut away from the C-section itself, and they just kept not. And I think that's exactly the right move. It puts you in her headspace. The horrifying realization that, yes, this is actually happening. Your smiling, kind-hearted husband who loves his big Lego set really is having you killed by torture.
1: Yeah, I think the juxtaposition of the tourney with Ama's death speaks to um, the visibility of violence in the society, and how that violence is met. On the tourney grounds, a man's face being bludgeoned into mashed potatoes is there for everyone to see, and everyone cheers. The trauma of Ama, however, is behind closed doors, with Viserys, er, Viserys usurping her choice in uh, calling for the C-section. The violence against women is hidden from view in this case. And... It honestly had me thinking back a lot to Blackwater and Cersei's line to Sansa about how the men will bleed out there and you will bleed in here, but they really only ever tell tales of one side of that dichotomy. Uh, Ama has no choice in the matter, and she spelled out to Viserys in an earlier scene that more often than not, she's been losing children in pregnancy or birth. Um, But in the moment, she's denied an explanation as to what's happening. She's denied choice, like we already said. And Aima wanting to live is a very real thing. And, you know, stories very traditionally, especially, you know, pop culture and mainstream media. Um, the choice is always that saving the child at all costs is the morally correct choice. And this is not, you know, necessarily what we're witnessing here as depicted in this pilot episode. And Viserys, you know, for on his part, all episode, he's kind of shown as an indecisive, doesn't really care much about stuff king. Um, But, you know, because earlier in the episode, he's not caring much about the stepstones. And then even later after these deaths, um, he's like, I will not choose between my brother and my daughter, even though that's literally his job is to make a choice between the two. But you see his indecisiveness there. But then here he's quick to throw his wife's uh, choice, her, you know, her her autonomy. He's uh, very happy to throw her bodily autonomy aside um, so that he can. Um, You know preserve a possible male heir
0: on his part. It was an intense scene to watch. I'll never never forget it It's it's slow. It's wretched and awful She's just begging and the blood doesn't stop and the key is that it's not being done by the cruel Damon or even a Manipulative schemer like Otto or Corliss. It's being done by Viserys by dad the cuddly patriarch as you say though I think what really makes this work is the juxtaposition with the tourney Private violence and public violence. I think you hit on it. That's, that's what's being expressed there. Two ideological engines running on blood as fuel.
1: And I realized this uh, rewatching the episode, but it's actually not just about visibility, but there's an audio component to the scene too, and the silence of women who are victims to patriarchy. Ramin Jawadi's score comes in strong for the scene, cutting back and forth between the two. On the tourney grounds, you have complete foley of Sir Kristen's Morning Star tearing up Damon's shield and the ring of Damon's sword against Cole's armor. But when it cut, cuts back to EMA, her screams are inaudible. She's been mixed out of the sound. We only finally get foley on that side of things from baby Balon's whales emerging from her. So this is, you know, good sound design that informs the thesis of what's actually being presented.
0: And you know, I was thinking while watching it, it was really powerful coming to this episode right after we re- recorded our episode on Sansa 3 in A Storm of Swords, in which she gets married to Tyrion. And in that chapter, marriage is also framed as this kind of human sacrifice, where even the relative good guys, like Tyrion or Garland Tyrell and Osmond Kettleblack in that chapter, are still ushering you into the cage and locking the door behind you. And yeah, Patty is incredible throughout the whole episode. I think such a range of emotions. He's jovial at the start when he says to Corliss about the Stepstones. Well, that sounds suspiciously like good news. And then later he's devastated and outraged. There's that when he's confronting Damon about the air for a day thing. And there's that that subtle move he makes of turning the sword towards Damon when Damon walks forward. Just to let him know that kind of open threat of the naked steel. But really, I think uh, most of my favorite scenes revolved around Damon. I loved that intro scene paced like a reveal in a horror movie in the throne room mm-hmm. with, with Damon himself blurred and out of focus at the edge of the frame. And the emphasis on the spiky throne itself, which I think really came together for me as a piece of design in this scene. Because this is, of course, different from the the more the smaller scale version of the Iron Throne in Game of Thrones. It's still not the towering skyscraper that George describes is his book accurate. But I think this design suits the story because really what this throne looks like is a dragon, it's this, like, you know, the spread of swords, like the spread of scales, and then the seat atop it. And everyone agrees in the show that the foundation of Targaryen power is the dragons, even if they disagree on what that means. So we first see Daemon sitting on the throne like it's his dragon, with no one else in the room to see it but Rhaenyra. Except for the brief
1: moment that uh Sir Harold Westerling oh, walks him in and he says, God be good. Um, and in anger, it's like, how dare you sit thou your throne? It's almost like... uh a recreation of Ned Stark seeing Jamie Lannister on there. And we'll probably come back to Jamie's character and talking about Damon later this episode. And uh, just real quickly here, I want to add about the throne is that allowing it to be as expansive as it is in this series actually maybe gives some meaning to it not being as. Um, you know, gnarly in the Game of Thrones series because the dragons are dead. Um, and like you say, it looks like a dragon here. But, uh, you know, 200 years after the events, the Iron Throne is kind of defanged of the power that once forged it um, because the dragons are all gone. Uh, so it is really, really great how they allowed the Iron Throne to take center stage here before we really got into the deeper daemon stuff with Rhaenyra.
0: It really gives you a sense of danger to the man, and yeah, definitely drawing from pitch litter Jamie to establish Damon's ambitions there. The Jamie that who wanted to sit the Iron Throne for himself and managed to make it so. I think slipping into High Valyrian for this scene was also a great call for multiple reasons. It forces you to sit up and really pay attention. It's a reminder that the Targaryens are from elsewhere and still have ways of separating themselves, and it establishes a particular intimacy between Daemon and Rhaenyra that they're talking in this language that no one else is really using much for the rest of the episode.
1: Yeah, and that itself is kind of externalized between the exchange of the Valyrian steel necklace, and Mm. Daemon frames Uh it as a way of carrying a piece of our ancestry, much like using the language of old Valyria is. Um, And I'm also realizing that in this chapter... Um, sorry, chapter of this episode, um, we see Rhaenyra receive something of the Targaryen heritage from, you know, one of her the older generation, whether it's the necklace here or the actual prophecy and the heir, heirdom um, that she re- receives from her father later. So um, we're seeing the two brothers give something to Rhaenyra in this episode as well.
0: And I think establishing a rapport between them is really important because they are now about to separate for a big chunk of the narrative. And Rhaenyra will have not one, nor two, but three potential love interests in the interim. Her husband Lenor, her lover Harwin Strong, and her would-be lover, I guess, Kristen Cole, briefly introduced here. And that is something I can see the show having difficulty juggling, especially with regards to Rhaenyra's two sets of children. So it's good to get some character work done here between Damon and Rhaenyra before the context around them changes dramatically, and repeatedly. Not to mention, of course, yeah, Rhaenyra also has the Alicent relationship. And I loved that shot drifting down to them through the weirwood leaves, like bobbing like a like a bird on the wind. It's, it was so idyllic and you can maybe think about it as representing Bran's POV if you want to get tinfoil with it. But yeah, Damon, Damon is tons of fun. He's, you know, on the page, he is, he's George's ultimate second son. He's part Jamie, but he's also part Oberyn, a little bit of Euron thrown in there. And on the page, Damon was always just a little too much for me. Kind of like Dario, where there's just too many adjectives for me to actually form a clear mental picture. He's just got too much going on, this guy. (laughs) The casting of Matt Smith kind of snaps Damon into place for me, because he's both menacing and fragile, like he might break in two before he gets to break you. You get the strong sense of someone who's thought about his life entirely in external terms, and has never really had to think about what he might actually want in the long term, let alone how he might go about getting it. In a certain context, he's got leadership and organizational skills to put Viserys to shame. As you were saying, Viserys is indecisive, Damon, less so. But that context is police brutality.
1: And boy, is it brutal. It's a scary sight seeing, essentially, the cops of King's Landing thumping their chests in salute to Damon. He calls them a pack of hounds and basically sets them loose as such. And even uh, watching the subtitles for this episode, they call the cheer of the gold cloaks a war cry, even though... They're not at war. They're just theoretically going to enforce the laws of the crown. Um, And we see people getting their arms and at occasion, their balls chopped off if they're not flat out just being killed during the scene. Um, And it reminds me a little bit about uh, Brienne and Jamie in season three of the show and also in a storm of swords uh, where, you know, Jamie has just lost his hand and Brienne's like, you know, small folk lose something every day. You know, you have a taste of the real world, finally, where people lose things. Um, and here we're seeing that just like we're seeing that sort of violence, like systematically just unleashed on the small folk because it doesn't look like there's a trial or anything happening here. Um, they're just kind of sending the cops out into the streets. And if someone's accused, it looks like
0: they're getting something chopped off. And I, I loved the bit, because it's, you, yeah, you have that brutal scene with Damon, establishing him as this this real urgent threat, which, you know, supports what the other politicians are doing. When you have someone like Otto saying, we got to keep Damon off the throne, he might be another Megor, you're nodding along with that. But then then you cut to him right outside the council room, and he's just eavesdropping. And it's like, yeah, I guess that also could be menacing. But the way it's framed, it's more like he's just he's any little brother and en- envious of his big brother's friends. Like he's sitting on the stairs while you're hanging out in the living room. And the way he grins when Viserys says that Damon lacks the patience for the throne. Because that's yeah, that's probably true. Like the only reason Damon wants it is because people like Otto don't want him to have it. He d- He wouldn't know what to do with it if he got it. Uh, It does remind me of, sorry, I keep coming
1: back to Jamie Lannister with uh, Daemon Targaryen. I don't know why, but you know how Jamie wants to fulfill his oath to Catelyn, just kind of the humor of it because no one expects him to, just kind of out of spite, he wants to fulfill that oath. And you kind of see that with Daemon here. He doesn't want the throne because he wants the throne, but he would do it out of spite just to get the gourd of uh, Otto Hightower over here. And I do think their encounter in the throne room themselves is a pretty interesting dynamic because there is some love there. There's obviously a lot of love there. That's why it's kind of coming to a head here. But at the same time, it also kind of reminds me of Stannis and Renly, Um, two Mm, kings, mm -hmm. uh, or at least two brothers uh, arguing over a claim here. Um, And it's, you know, obviously a very different scenario. But I think that's just something you're going to think about when you see uh, brothers talking like that. And I like Viserys uh, mentioning that Uh, or sorry, rather, Damon mentioned that Viserys is cutting the image of the Conqueror on the Iron Throne, uh, holding his sword, and you pointed out the very subtle movements that Patty Considine is doing. But it's also the cutting image of Ned Stark, and not necessarily Ned Stark from the show, but Ned Stark from the promotional material. Um, Because if you bought the Game of Thrones Season 1 DVD or the poster, it's Ned Stark holding ice on the Iron Throne, something that's never actually shown in the series. Um, But I think I I think that's a little bit of deception on the show's part, just a little bit of we want to have kind of Ned Stark's image in your head surrounding Viserys, not necessarily because Viserys is honorable like Ned Stark per se, but he's kind of going to be this fulcrum of the narrative, especially when he eventually ends up dying and then war really explodes around him in a very similar way.
0: Yeah, probably also in Episode 9 of Season 1. they might <laughs> li- That might happen with both characters in literally the same episode.
1: Yeah, so um, I guess we should kind of just talk about the biggest thing, the biggest buzz, at least in our parts of the community, is the big lore revelation. Um, the idea that Aegon foresaw the rise of the Others and that Westeros must be united as one against the Winter, or the coming Darkness. Um, and this is something that's been long talked about in the fandom, long theorized. Um, so it's, you know, obviously just a big thing to get it explicitly stated in this show, have it called The Song of Ice and Fire, um, which can't be understated itself. And I think where this is going to come in is George has always been fascinated with the preservation and loss of knowledge on an institutional scale in Westeros. The secrets of Valyrian steel have been lost, the burning of libraries at Winterfeld and likely Old Town, the disrepair of the books at Castle Black. It's very possible we will see this knowledge lost, broken, or transformed before the dance is all said and done. Um, But with this information, it can perhaps begin to answer some questions about maybe Summerhall or Rhaegar. If he or Ag had discovered some part of this prophecy that could explain their own actions, uh, whether it's what Egg was trying to do at Summerhall or Rhaegar, um, just kind of turning on that dime from being kind of bookish to a warrior prince. Um, and then I think to go along with the Rhaegar imagery, of course, is the repeated phrase, promise me this, promise me, which is what Viserys says to Renera about the prophecy. So, um, and my own little, uh, crackpot theory that I'll uh, get out here before I hand it back to Emmett is that the camera really, really, really focused on the dagger at Viserys's hip. Um, the actor himself was kind of holding it as he walked all episode, but when he was speaking of the prophecy, he, the camera kind of tilted down towards it and I believe in promotional films like not trailers or production uh, steals but actual promotional stills. we've seen writing on the cat's paw dagger in this show so part of me wonders if the prophecy or some part of it is written on it you know it's runes mm. or high valerian something like that and if you want to just you know add a little more spice to the crackpot um, we know Rhaenyra at some point is going to sell her crown to buy passage to Dragonstone um, she could have maybe also possibly sold this dagger um because her intention might have been I'll just tell Aegon the third in person uh, aegon the younger the prophecy, but of course she gets eaten uh, before she has a chance to do that so that could be like I said this could be about the loss of that knowledge and that is my theory. I know I'm going full crackpot in our very first episode, but um once the wheels start spinning it's hard it's hard for them to stop,
0: nor should they I love that and i I agree with the idea that Rhaenyra is not able to pass on the secret prophecy that she got from her father here. I think that that fits the kind of tragic themes of what the dance is supposed to represent the kind of the peak of Targaryen power before they fall into disrepair. It would make sense if that was lost. And you you really do get the sense with Rhaegar specifically that he stumbled upon this, Mm -hmm. that no one told him about this, that he kind of accidentally researched his way into this. And yeah, in between Rhaenyra and Rhaegar, it definitely seems like the Targaryens who most likely knew were Egg and his brother Maester Aemon. Maybe one because of the other. And that, that may have and there's a kind of elegance to that where like that played into Summer Hall, and that's where Rhaegar was born, and then Rhaegar is the next one to find out about it, and that plays into Robert's Rebellion. That seems like a a strong buried structure that makes sense with, with what we know. And yeah, I think Aegon's prophecy dream really fits just fine with what we already knew. And you can, I think you can see George's recurring narrative patterns come into play here. Mm-hmm. Like I've joked before that we don't need to see what happens next with Jon Snow in the snow show because we already know what happens next. We have Mance Raider. That's what happens next with Jon. And similarly, I think we've, we've kind of already seen the payoff for Aegon's dream, what it inspires you to do, what comes next. We've seen that with Stannis in the books and arguably with Danny in the show. In Stannis' case, that which you do to unite the realm against the one true enemy can disqualify you from the position. And even, as with Danny's case, if you help successfully cancel the apocalypse, you're left with the ashes of human power. Which we see at the start of this episode, which is just great. The, the framing of Harrenhal behind everyone, all the grandeur of this ceremony, undercut by like the, the broken pillars and the rotting walls, just the, the ruin that Egon made of this place. And down that same road will go his city and his kingdom in the end. Yeah, there was just one specific
1: shot, uh, a shot of the Great Hall in Harrenhal where you saw the burned out pillars and missing stuff. And you're like, Uh you could, this is very similar to how uh, the Red Keep was shot in the Iron Throne episode, the Game of Thrones series finale. Um, I just noted a very visual similarity between the two. Um, So I do think it's kind of linking the first episode of this with. Or at least, you know, what the dragons wrought at Hall, very much tying it to what we saw in Game of Thrones and expect to happen in some capacity, I think, at the end of the Song of Ice and Fire.
0: And that's the case, even though the Great Council was a, a peaceful transfer, transfer of power, right? You know, no one's fighting a war over this. We're all gathered together. We're talking it out. Uh, Rhaenys and Corlys aren't happy, but they accepted the outcome. And yet the ruin is already there. Like it's a messenger from the future saying, this is where it's all going to go, though, when they, when these tensions finally boil over generations down the line. And when uh, Viserys was saying that the prophecy might involve, you know, that a Targaryen has to sit the Iron Throne so we can stand against the others, and I was thinking maybe an ironic twist on that is that... There is a Targaryen sitting the Iron Throne when the Others are defeated, but it turns out to be young Griff, mm-hmm. who actually isn't involved with the whole defeating of the Others part. It's just like, yeah, you know, an ironic piece of the prophecy slotting into place, not how you'd necessarily expect. And, of course, Viserys turned to the camera and winked and said the words, A Song of Ice and Fire. <laughs> uh, you know, get a little hat tip to the series title. And that, of course, is also exactly what Rhaegar says in The House of the Undying that about his newborn son. His is the Song of Ice and Fire. Although he added there must be one more because the dragon must have three heads, which is never to be found here. That seems to be Rhaegar's little innovation or something got added to the game of telephone down through the years. Who knows? We might find out more about that as we go. So we've talked a lot about what we liked about the episode. In terms of its weaker aspects, for me, the main one was that uh, Corlys and Rhaenys specifically are really on the fringe here. And there's... You know, if you've read the source material, you know why they matter. But if you don't, there's if you haven't, there's no real sense of why they matter beyond her being an important part of the backstory in the opening scene. But in the present day, you might you might struggle to suggest why these people are important. Yeah, um,
1: especially with Corliss, I'm kind of actually surprised, maybe even a little bit impressed that they didn't feel the need to start uh, mentioning the nine voyages and all the great things right. that he did or how rich he is at this point, like... They were very, very kind of restrained with his characterization here. Um, I think, like, the most telling thing he did all episode was refuse the wine pour at the small council um, just because it seemed True. like, A, he's the only one who's taking it seriously. And um, I don't think this is an intentional intentional parallel, but the first thing that jumped into my mind was Roose Bolton in Game of Thrones Season 3. Oh, um, yeah. Where, you know, Jamie and Brienne are... Uh, eating dinner with him, and he refuses it, and he says he doesn't partake. That's a show-only invention, of course, but um, obviously when this new show does it, I can pick that out. Um, and yeah, Reynas also, um, I imagine we're going to get a lot more from Eve Best uh, later this season. Um, the only thing that stuck out with me from her end was that she had a spiel that kind of reminded me of Catelyn's The Nights of Summer. Yep. Um, uh, what's it called? When she's at uh, Renly's camp. I hear they're just talking about how vicious this tourney is um, and how violent it is. And it's basically because there hasn't been a war in 70 years or something like that. King Magor has been dead. So all these soldiers and in a society that generally venerates martial prowess, um, you don't have wars. You have tourneys for these people to um, get violent at. But you can also see how, again, those are the seeds of war because a lot of the people are going to end up being major factors in The Dance of
0: Dragons. Agree that we're gonna get yeah we're gonna get more from them in the episodes to come we're gonna see Damon and Corlys team up to go east and we're gonna have Rayna and Rhaenyra will at least have that conversation that we've seen in all the trailers and yeah in this episode they are they are mostly just there for exposition they they do establish very quickly that Corlys can be kind of mercenary about who he serves when Otto is like weren't you just talking of Damon five seconds ago and now you're back on your wife's claim so you get that in there but yeah mostly at this point in this episode they're just th- here to. To tell the audience things directly,
1: yeah, there is uh, some of the dialogue comes off a bit just unnatural and clearly there just to get some exposition out, which isn't a fatal flaw. There's a lot to introduce here, and the relationships True. between these characters and the histories between them do matter. Um, but this was kind of apparent in the earlier small council scenes, as well as some of the scenes with messaria and Damon, where Masaria is basically just telling Damon who he is, rider of Caraxes, brother of the king, um, and you know. A a smart television show will reinforce things so the audience isn't lost, but it just felt a little more heavy-handed than, you know, some other stuff, you know, maybe more heavy-handed than the Winter is Coming pilot. But, you know, George had ears to refine most of the dialogue that ended up uh, being adapted for that first show, whereas this is stuff that's coming together in a much shorter time. And while I think Matt Smith was really great as... Damon, i did feel the episode lacked that little edge um whether it's someone like Tyrion lannister was in that first season or later characters like Braun or Olena tyrell would later embody but i think another sharp character could help just balance out the very serious tone um, and i imagine a lot of the bit players that we didn't really get focus on will get some of that material later um because we are kind of getting an extended prologue to the dance with Spending a lot of time twenty years before it takes place, so um, it might be some time until like some of those really pivotal players that will add that edge get added.
0: I don't love this episode like I do the pilot of a game of Game of Thrones, and it's the the comparison to Peter Dinklage holds up because I think it, this episode is not particularly funny, nor is it especially cool, and that's not necessarily a weakness. I like the tone, but it could struggle to retain a huge audience if it keeps going like that. And from what I gather, uh, Damon and Corlys on the Stepstones, that's where we're going to get the big action beats of the next few episodes. While we presumably do character work back in Westeros with Rhaenyra and Rhaenys, Kristen Cole, as well as Alicent and Viserys. We see them have one intimate scene in this episode, but that, of course, is something you have to start working on right away. And that sounds like a solid balance to me. I am curious, though, if they find that edge you're talking about over the course of those episodes before the story affords them the chance to really blow shit up. Yeah, no, I... um... It's interesting to see because I don't know exactly which character best fills that. Of
1: course, I think Matt Smith um, probably. is probably the character who will get that, but um, since he's also just so core to uh, the political machinations right now, whereas Tyrion got to be a little divorced from it and be a little bit That's of an observer. Um, we'll see. So, um, but there's a lot of space, and we'll see. Uh, you know, some of these side characters, like there was a small council there outside of Otto High Tower and Corlys and King Viserys. None of them made a huge impression this episode, but uh, perhaps, you know, Lord Beesbury or um, what Lionel Strong will have a bigger
0: impact in coming episodes. So I hope Lionel Strong will. I think that that could that has dramatic potential. Lord Beesbury's going to have a couple scenes before his, his throat gets slit. <laughs> but yeah, I think you make an excellent point that Tyrion's outsider status in the first book and the first season of the show was was really an advantage because he doesn't he doesn't have to spend much time on exposition or really saying or doing anything plot-centric because he's kind of on the fringes of it until he's forced into it. And some of the best stuff in both the first book and the first season is just Tyrion's exasperation and rage at being forced to be part of the plot when he did not want anything to do with any of this. And so that can create some great... You know, cynical, somewhat snarky. They held the humor balance, I think, together well in that first season with Tyrion, but it's an easy entryway for a modern audience, especially one who might be knee jerk skeptical about the actual trappings of a story like this. And Matt Smith is the closest to that, but I think you hit the nail on the head that the problem with that is he does, he is directly involved in the plot immediately. A lot of the plot is how the hell do we keep this guy (laughs) from taking power? What other alternatives could we explore, please? So he doesn't, he does not get too cut loose in quite the same way. The stepstones might help that, because that is such a narrative detour. Maybe they can turn that potential weakness into a strength by just having it be the Matt Smith show for a little while in that part of the story.
1: Yeah. No, I think um just kind of talking about that, it gets to a lot of the story of a song of Ice and Fire is people kind of marginalized by the traditional power centers or they're cripples, bastards, or broken things. We see people on the fringes of power, but not, not you know We don't have a Stannis point of view, but instead we get Ser Davos, whereas all the big players in The Dance of Dragons are all at that core of power. So it's going to be an examination of a lot of the same themes we saw in A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones, but almost from an inside-out perspective as opposed to the kind of outside-in perspective we had from the older cast of characters from A Song of Ice and Fire.
0: Yep, that's going to be what they're going to have to navigate because those, those more outsider characters do exist, but they come later in the narrative, like you were saying, so they will have to to find a way of crossing that bridge. So I think that is going to wrap us up for our first House of the Dragon episode. Like I said up top, we're going to be releasing these every week after each episode, recording them on Mondays, the night after the episode airs, and then releasing them for everyone on Tuesday mornings. So as always, you can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on SoundCloud. Check us out on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, wherever you listen to us. You can check out our Patreon, if you haven't already, at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. We have early access and exclusive episodes like my ongoing series on both Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, which I'm going to be returning to on a monthly basis for all $5 and above patrons starting in September. So our next Lord of the Rings episode on the Pyre of Denethor is going to be coming in just a couple weeks, and then I'll get into Revenge of the Sith for Star Wars a couple weeks after that, so check that out if you haven't already. You can uh, follow us on Twitter at ASOIAF, or shoot us an email at ASOIAF at gmail.com. And you can follow me at BorkWenton on Twitter. And I'm Manu, also known as
1: Bomb. Uh, You can follow my Lord of the Rings podcast at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, where we will also be doing something very similar to this about the new Amazon series, The Rings of Power.
0: So uh, thank you so much for listening, everyone. And we will see you next week for more House of the Dragon.